0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam.
1: I'm Candace Watts-Smith.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and this week we are talking about the Federalist Society. Our guest is Amanda Hollis-Bruski, who is Associate Professor of Politics at Pomona College and author of a book all about the Federalist Society called Ideas with Consequences. And, guys, we spent a lot of time on the show talking about Congress, about all the things that are going on with voting rights and and what's happening in the states. But there's also a lot happening with the courts and the Federalist Society has played a key role in shaping the courts really over the past couple of decades. And so we thought it would be good to kind of take a step back and talk about how we got here and what it might all mean moving
1: forward. Not only have we seen the Federalists be major influence in the way that the court is shaped now, but we should expect to continue to see the influence of the Federalist Society in part because, or, you know, maybe we see it best in the Supreme Court where six of the justices are or have some at some point in time had a relationship or a membership with the Federalist Society. And the other thing that we're seeing, I guess, in response to this kind of maybe even predictable ideological bend, which I hope Chris will talk to us through about why the clear overlap between politics and the Supreme Court becomes so murky for democracy. But One of the things that we're seeing a lot more conversation about is court reform. How do we make the courts less political? So I think that it's really important that we talk about the Federalist Society insofar as it helps us, grounds us to understanding the conversation around reform and the politics of the courts that we're seeing right now.
0: After hearing Amanda's interview, I went back and read Hamilton 78, which is like the Federalist paper for lawyers and judges and anybody who's really concerned about this. And it's typically dense and really smart and well argued. And his argument is that, guys, you don't have to worry about the judiciary, right? The judiciary is the least powerful branch. All it does is just reviews cases. It doesn't have the power of the sword or the power of the purse. And so it is just going to determine where things stand in terms of the Constitution. And in order for that to work, Hamilton says, we need to have this branch be independent. And so that's why you need lifetime appointments. And you set them in this position where they are just going to be smart people who are going to reflect on the cases that are brought to them and bring their own judgment to it so they're going to be removed from the world of partisanship and this is a line i don't remember reading before but it's terribly germane right now he says as liberty can have nothing to fear from the judiciary alone it would have everything to fear from its union with either of the other departments So his point is that it's not anything scary. It's not all that powerful. Congress is where the power is, as far as Hamilton is concerned. But in order to make sure that stays that way, it has to be independent. And as soon as it becomes no longer independent, as soon as it becomes connected to these same partisan battles that we see and that we expect to play out in Congress, then it can no longer do that.
1: Although it was expected for the Supreme Court to be the least powerful of the three branches of government. The Supreme Court has always tried to encroach on powers of the other two branches, even starting with Marbury versus Madison, right? Judicial review Mm -hmm. was a power created by the court itself. And we had the opportunity of talking with Rachel Sheldon earlier this year who said, courts historically were ideological and very partisan. And one of the reasons why we had an era of less partisanship and less clearly ideological was an effort to increase legitimacy and power. And now we're at a moment because of polarization and the idiosyncratic rules of the chambers of the houses, like the filibuster, that the legislative branch is weak And the Federalist Society has managed to leverage this situation to produce a climate for a conservative counter-revolution. So they are in the, I guess, maybe you could say in the right place at the right time for the thing that they want to get done.
0: Right. And we can talk later about, I think, Amanda's metaphor is capturing lightning Mm -hmm. in a bottle and then manufacturing electricity and how that fits into the kind of right place at the right time narrative. But I wanna just say one more little thing about the founders. In their understanding, the reason that the first article is Congress is because that's most important. And they understood that that was gonna be where the most power was, right? And so it is a very different circumstance from what the founders were hoping for. And the grounds on which they made their arguments for why this is the right way to frame the judicial branch, right? Because ah, it's nothing to worry about. Well, now it is, it's done exactly what Hamilton said it shouldn't do. And that explains a lot about where we are and why we have such knockdown drag out fights about the Supreme Court justice, for example.
1: Well, I say this in the most non-partisan way possible, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you can intend all you want. I think, though, what is important is that we just spend some time getting an understanding of what an organization like the Federalist Society can do. And and maybe that will help us to walk a new path toward those, you know, small D Democrat goals. So yeah,
2: I think that's right, Candace. I think Amanda does a good job in the interview of weaving in those connections to democracy. We talk a lot about testimony that she gave to Congress in the fall where she talked about judicial independence and some of its ramifications of what happens to democracy when we no longer have that independence. So let's go now to the interview with Amanda hollis Brusky. Amanda hollis Presky, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So lots to talk about regarding the Federalist Society and I think bigger issues about the kind of relationship between litigation, legislation, how it's all being scrambled up these days. But I want to start with some basics of what the Federalist Society is to set the table. I know in your book, you say there is no one clear definition, but you frame it as a political epistemic network, is I believe your term, and that might be a useful way for our listeners to think about it. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about what you mean by that term and and how the Federalist Society fits within that framework?
3: Sure. And I'll start by saying political epistemic network. Someone at the Wall Street Journal reviewed the book and because of that phrase called it jarringly academic. So I'll try not to make this conversation jarringly Oh, I don't know. I would
2: say our our podcast is jarringly academic (laughs) at
1: times, so
3: I I wouldn't feel too bad about that. My daughters have taken that on as a sort of like, mom, is that jarringly academic? Mm -hmm. But Political Epistemic Network, really what it means is it's a network of elites, in this case legal elites, who share a set of beliefs, in this case about the law, about the proper method of interpreting the constitution, the relationship between the judicial branch and the other political branches. And they work to actively develop those beliefs through meetings, through uh, organized chapters in law schools and lawyers chapters. And then the last piece of it is they're not only developing, nurturing and diffusing these beliefs among their network, but the goal really is to affect law and policy. And so they are networking with folks who have access to positions of power. They are putting their own members in places where they can control the levers of power. And then they're drawing on those beliefs to, in some case, radically alter or reshape law and policy. So when we think of the political epistemic network, I think it's helpful as a visual, you know, the network itself is like a circulatory system inside the body. And the ideas are moving like blood through that circulatory system. And the goal is, of course, To kind of tap into the nerve center of power in American government, and they've been remarkably successful at doing that over the past 40 years.
2: Yeah, and you, I think in some recent testimony that that you gave to Congress, you broke down some of the ways those ideas circulate and that power influences into supply side and demand side as far as the judiciary is concerned. Can you talk more about that and how that functions?
3: Yeah. So to some extent, the ideas are the raw materials that are used to justify or to implement their broader policy vision for American government and for the courts. But those ideas are not as valuable if you don't have folks in positions of power who are creating a demand for those ideas. And so, as I mentioned, the Federal Society has been quite intentional about networking and placing its members on the federal courts, on the judiciary as clerks, to federal judges, as prominent litigators, or as lawyers working in the Justice Department, Attorney General, Solicitor General. And those are the folks who are in a position to utilize the ideas. And so they're the demand side. They say, I want to radically reshape the law, and I want some ideas or theories that will allow me to justify that in a way that doesn't look totally off the wall. And so what the Federal Society really has been effective at doing is sort of influencing the supply side, the ideas themselves, and nurturing and developing those both within the legal academy, then in think tanks and within the Justice Department at times, and then placing their network members into those positions of power where they're creating and generating a demand for those ideas.
2: And can you say more about what the ideas are? I think most listeners you know, probably know from the kind of recent trajectory of the Supreme Court that it is a conservative group, but can you take us a couple layers deeper into what their philosophy is and how it plays out?
3: Yeah, I think probably the most helpful way to understand their ideas and I want to emphasize that they're not a monolith. There certainly is disagreement within the federal society. We think about the conservative legal movement more broadly. You have those who lean more towards libertarian, pro-business deregulation, and those who lean more towards social conservatism, who are interested in anti-abortion positions or anti-LGBTQ ideas, who are really intent on reviving religious liberty and Sort of shrinking the establishment clause so that religious groups can have a greater influence on government. And so you have social conservatives, you have pro-business libertarian conservatives, and in many ways they tossle and they disagree among themselves. But for the first, I would say, 30 years of the organization's existence, they were founded in 1982, the federal society, or at least the dominant players within the network, have more of a libertarian bent. And their initial agenda and really what they went after at the get-go was deregulation. So this is a group of the founders of the Federal Society came up with the Reagan revolution. Reagan is elected in a landslide and is under the mantle of limited government deregulation. That regulation was strangling business, free market principles. And so the Federal Society has worked to really limit the power of the federal government in a variety of ways, has worked to limit or hollow out the capacity of the administrative state, which of course is an outgrowth of the New Deal era, the 1930s. So a lot of the federal society's early agenda really focused on limiting the federal government, conversely enhancing states' rights, and attacking the administrative state and regulation. But there's also a a kind of a second agenda there, and that one has become more prominent of late, and that's the more culture wars focused agenda. And so here we see decisions about sort of reducing the ability to implement color-conscious remedies and combat the effects of Jim Crow and discrimination. So these are attacks that align more closely with kind of rolling back the great society, sort of limiting anti-discrimination statutes limiting the ability of plaintiffs to bring cases, to challenge kind of discrimination lawsuits. And then religious liberty, I would say, is the kind of current focus of the Roberts Court. And this has been maybe the last five or six years, you've seen a real emphasis on an expansive understanding of religious liberty that allows certain groups, organizations to exempt themselves from otherwise generally applicable rules and regulations.
2: I actually wanted to ask about that. Obviously, Donald Trump was very vocal about his reliance on the Federalist Society for choosing Supreme Court justices, but I'm wondering where it stands in the post-Trump Republican Party, given that we're seeing a different type of leader, different types of folks come in, people that are really heavy on the culture war side of things you were describing, and that's not even getting to things like QAnon and and all of these types of trends. I guess, do you see the society's influence waning at all as you look to the future?
3: I don't think the federal society's influence will wane. They've become a mainstay for, at least in terms of judicial selection, for Republican administrations, really beginning in earnest with George W. Bush. They entirely supplanted the American Bar Association The ABA has been sidelined even by the Biden administration now and thinking about judicial nominations. But I see the federal society as playing that role. Now, I think the interesting person to talk about when it comes to coziness to Trump and QAnon and some of the really culture wars aspects of Trump is Leonard Leo, So Leonard Leo is the executive vice president of the Federalist Society. He takes leave from the Federalist Society to join Trump in the White House, to shepherd his nominees, to really control judicial selection. And Leonard Leo is himself a staunch Catholic. And Leo's sort of coziness with the Trump administration has, I think, indelibly co-branded the Federalist Society with the Trump administration and with his legacy of judges, But there are those within the Federal Society network who appear to have some kind of cognitive dissonance, right? So they themselves will say, I'm a never-Trumper. I don't approve of Donald Trump. I think he's a disgrace. He's anti-intellectual in the way that we, the Federal Society, are trying to be the kind of intellectual elite of the right, of the Republican Party. And I think this kind of cognitive dissonance is really nicely summed up by... There were stress balls at um, a Federal Society convention. A friend had taken a picture and put it on Twitter. And it says, keep calm and remember Gorsuch, right? So every time Trump does something that is horrifyingly embarrassing to the Federal Society and the Federal Society brand. Just squeeze that stress ball. Keep calm and remember, we got Gorsuch. And then, of course, then they got Kavanaugh and then they got Amy Coney Barrett and a whole host of lower federal court judges. So I think that kind of sums up where the Federal Society is. Mm
2: -hmm. And thinking about you, how this bigger restructuring of the court, I know you in your congressional testimony also talked about the idea of judicial independence and how important that is to American democracy. We love a good Federalist Papers lesson on this show, if you wouldn't mind, (laughs) kind of laying out some of that framework for us. Why that's important and why this trend that we've seen over the past 30, 40 years through the Federalist Society is detrimental to that.
3: Yeah. I mean, so when I teach this to my students, we always start with Federalist 78 and Alexander Hamilton, assuring the people of New York and the broader American public at that time, that a truly independent judiciary was not something to be afraid of, right? It was necessary because you need an independent judiciary that is a judiciary that has life tenure and is not subject to the whims of political majorities. You need that body in order to be able to make the guarantees of the constitution real, to fundamentally protect rights and liberties to keep those out of the purview of the whims of democratic masses. And courts wouldn't be able to do that if every time they handed down a decision, they thought that they were accountable, right, to democratic majorities. And so the independence of the judiciary, Hamilton argued, was really a virtue. But it was only a virtue, and this is an important caveat in his essay that I talked about in front of the House Judiciary Committee, it was only a virtue if the court was to be truly Independent. And he says if and when it ever became the case that the court was independent in name only, but really a functional arm of one of the political parties, then the consequences to liberty would be frightful to contemplate. What I argued in my congressional testimony is that as a political scientist, I've never believed, and I don't think it's ever been the case, that courts are some kind of being that is wholly able to remove their own political preferences and their own politics from their decision-making. That's never been the case, right? They've never been truly independent in that sense. Neutral arbiters, right? You can think of the lady justice with the scales blindfolded. That's a myth, right? But over the course of the judiciary's history, there's always been kind of a mix of ideologies that is never quite lined up perfectly with political parties. And what I show and what political scientists have shown is that beginning in 2010, the ideology of the court maps 100% perfectly on to the political party that appointed that judge or justice. And when we have that kind of a situation and when we have major decisions on issues that affect all Americans, you know, the most important issues of the day coming down straight along party lines, 5 four, one way, 5-4 the other way, that's when the courts at least appear not to be independent anymore. And if we believe that now the court and the 6-3 to three conservative supermajority on the court is merely an extension of the Republican Party, then we start to question the legitimacy of their rulings and they're completely unaccountable, and they have life tenure.
2: The people in the federal Society must recognize this, and I guess at a most
3: basic level, do they care? That's a great question. Let me give you two different answers. So the first answer is kind of the John Roberts position, which he's the chief justice. He does seem to care deeply about the legitimacy of the court as an institution, about the court appearing too partisan, And what we've seen, particularly since Kavanaugh was appointed to the court, is John Roberts seeming to moderate his decisions and join the liberals more often than he did, let's say, at the beginning of his term, when he's writing Shelby County versus Holder or when he's siding with the majority in Citizens United. So it seems that there is, at least on the court, this view is represented by John Roberts. Roberts has also really distanced himself from the Federal Society I think the real breaking point was the Affordable Care Act. So Roberts provides the critical fifth vote to uphold key portions of the Affordable Care Act. And the Federal Society viewed him as a complete traitor and uh, really vilified him. And, And Roberts has distanced himself from the Federal Society and arguably that has allowed him a little bit more freedom to position himself in a way that he thinks benefits the institution. The second answer to this question is look at Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is another hero of the Federal Society. Arguably, some said to me in an interview, he is the closest thing to an ideal Federal Society type judge that we have on the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas believes that the most important thing is to align the Constitution with what he understands to be the original meaning. That means when it comes to something like understanding the federal commerce power, that he would turn the clocks back to 1937, where he thinks the court took a wrong turn during the New Deal era and started upholding these expansive interventions by FDR and the New Deal administration into the economy. Right, He would undo all of that nearly 100 years of precedent, regardless of what he thought that looked like to the public, because he believes the important thing is to go back to where the court got it wrong. And there's a very aggressive constituency within the federal society who thinks that's the way to go, that we don't care about precedent because all that precedent was just bad precedent. And the court got it wrong for so long that we need to finally just go back and correct it, regardless of what consequences that has for how people view the judiciary as a legitimate Mm -hmm. sort of restrained institution.
2: And so I guess the other thing here is it's sort of this coming to a head of, on the one hand, this shift in influence or ideology in one particular direction, but also with that, there's more decisions and more things coming to the court to decide as opposed to Congress or more democratic means.
3: Yeah. And I think that's a really important point and one which political scientists talk about a lot. This is not just about the court and looking at the court in a vacuum. The court is part of a broader political process. And in many ways, the court is a product of that polarization, yes. But that polarization means that there's gridlock, particularly when you have divided government. So we don't have divided government now, and we still have gridlock because of the filibuster and the threat of minority rule. And when that gridlock exists in the political branches, It's always difficult to get legislation passed, but now it's even more so. And so policy entrepreneurs, people who are looking to enact a particular agenda, are more attracted to the courts as a venue. It's easier to get five votes on the Supreme Court than it is a supermajority, perhaps, of votes in Congress, depending on who controls what branch and whether or not the presidency is controlled by the same party as Congress. And so divided government, polarization, gridlock, really have been driving important policy questions through the courts. We've constitutionalized it. We've taken it out of the hands of congressional or democratic majorities. So the additional consequence of going through the courts is that those decisions are stickier. They're harder to undo and they're longer lasting. And so if you're thinking about democratic majorities passing legislation, That's hard enough right now with unified government. Were any part of those legislations to get struck down by the court, well, then you're working within a narrow policy space. So the court can effectively narrow the policy space within which Democratic majorities can even enact policy. So that's another consequence.
2: So as we think about how this moves forward, the group is clearly not going anywhere. It might have its disagreements and things, but I guess I'm wondering... Two things. One, is there an equivalent to this on the left that might someday some way be able to get to a place where it could be an intellectual or policy judicial counter? And is there any prospect for reforming the federalist society itself to perhaps bring it more in line with small d democratic values?
3: The first half of your question, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me that, I could retire now. Is there a federal society of the left? And the answer is yes and no. Shortly after the election of George W. Bush, Bush versus Gore, there are some legal academics and former attorneys for Al Gore saw the influx of federal society lawyers in Florida and really boots on the ground to help bolster that litigation and said, this thing has gotten really big and powerful, and we've been asleep at the wheel on the left. And so during the Clinton administration, there was really a bit of an obliviousness of the federal society. And while the federal society is out of power during the Clinton administration, they're building, they're growing, they're refining their ideas, and they're positioning themselves to be the American Bar Association, but of the right. And so there's an acknowledgement of that, and a handful of legal academics and former attorneys for Al Gore got together and formed the American Constitution Society. And ACS, in its institutional machinery, is an exact replica of the Federal Society. They copied the Federal Society's blueprint and said, let's try to do what they're doing, but we're going to nurture and develop liberal and progressive ideas about the Constitution, about law, about constitutional interpretation. We're going to provide a space for liberal and progressive lawyers to network. And hopefully, the next time we have a Democratic administration, we'll be able to do for them what the Federal Society has done for Republican administrations. So they spend the eight years of George W. Bush building up this infrastructure, and it looks exactly like the Federal Society, right? But when President Obama comes to power and he starts naming judges, Supreme Court justices, Justice Department attorneys, with a few exceptions, Eric Holder being one of them, he was involved with ACS. So what I often say is the Federal Society has a monopoly on that system for right-of-center judges who or lawyers who are looking for positions in Republican administrations. And on the left, there's dozens of ways to get credentialed that don't necessarily go through the American Constitution Society. So while there is an attempt, there are also a million other ways, including the legal academy, which is still predominantly dominated by liberals, where lawyers of the left can go and get credentialed and still make their way up through democratic administrations.
2: And so what about for people listening to this that have sort of been watching with dismay as this has all been happening and thinking about some of these challenges to voting rights and these types of things that are coming before the court. I mean, is there anything that citizens can do to have influence here?
3: That's a great question. And of course, the thing that's right now in our faces is the prospect of some kind of court reform. So absent any reform, the court's going to look like this for 30 years plus years. But there are some really interesting and I think doable court reform proposals out there. We don't know whether the Biden's Court Reform Commission, which is 36 members, most of whom are elite lawyers, whether or not they're going to be recommending any of these kinds of reforms at the end of their process. We don't know what that's going to look like. Certainly early reports, from folks who are deeply invested in court reform, they seem disappointed with the composition of the committee. They don't think that this is a committee that's positioned to make the kind of radical change they think needs to be made on the court. But short of court packing, which of course is adding new seats onto the Supreme Court, which Congress has the complete ability to do and has done a number of times throughout history, short of adding seats and having the Biden administration fill them, there are several other interesting proposals. And I think you know, the one that I'm most fond of, would be statutory term limits. So this is a recognition that, yes, judges and justices are political. And because of that, they should have limited terms. They should be independent while they're on the bench, but they should not be serving for 40 years and outliving their political relevance by two decades. So what statutory term limits would do is basically Congress would pass a statute that would elevate sitting circuit court judges, lower district court or circuit court judges, who would still have life tenure. It would elevate them to the Supreme Court for a limited number of time. Uh, so 12 to 18 years are the most common proposals. After they were done with their term, they can go back and serve on the lower court. So you don't mess with the life tenure requirement. And just as Supreme Court justices back in the day, used to actually ride circuit. So they would take their horses and go to a particular circuit, hear cases, and then go back to the court. So these lower court judges would ride SCOTUS for a limited period of time. The other thing this does is take down the temperature on Supreme Court nominations. Right now, the vacancies are irregular and unpredictable. And so when one comes up, it's a knockdown, all out, drag out fight, as we've seen with Merrick Garland and with Brett Kavanaugh, and then most recently with Amy Coney Barrett, right? So it encourages sort of a take no prisoners type of politics. Get what you can, get as much as you can, because you don't know when you're going to get another shot at this. If you regularize those appointments by saying every president gets one or two, and they're going to only be serving for a limited period of time, then you take down the heat on those appointments And then you also allow the court to keep up to some extent, right, with Democratic majorities, although you don't want them totally aligned, of course.
2: So, Amanda, we've been talking mostly so far about the Federalist Society's impact on the courts, but I think they've also done a lot to change how we think about the federal bureaucracy and the way that it works. Can you talk more about that?
3: Your question is spot on. So... The Federal Society has a multi-pronged approach. Not everyone is going to be a federal judge or a clerk or a legislator, but they've also worked at placing people within White House and within the executive branch. I think back to the early 1980s, there was a recognition that if you were going to truly deregulate or starve the beast, then you had to work it from the inside out and so you had a number of federal society members in OMB right office of management and budget in Oira And through those channels, they were able to really limit the budgets of particular agencies. They were deeply reviewing requests for money. They were reviewing all of the regulatory rules, issuing guidance about how those rules ought to be implemented in ways that were more favorable to kind of a narrower version of regulation and the regulatory power. But also you can think of heads of Health and Human Services, the Environmental Protection Agency... Under Trump, many of these folks were involved with the Federal Society. And so, again, putting agency heads at the EPA, at HHS and other agencies allows them to narrowly construe their own mission and to starve the beast from the inside out. And so that there's certainly a recognition that the executive branch is one place that Federal Society network members can go and can use the levers of power to achieve these broader anti-regulatory agenda.
2: So to wrap things up here, thinking about the Federalist Society's role in our democracy, on the one hand, you know, what they've done is not necessarily a bad thing in a democracy. They've been able to organize around ideas that they're passionate about and advocate for those ideas, which is all I think, you know, perfectly fine in a democracy. So I'm wondering, given all of that, where did things go off the rails, if that's the right way to think about it? Or how did we get to this point where now the Federalist Society is seen as a cause for concern in American
3: democracy? What they do is they just, my advisor said, they bottled lightning. They figured out the formula for how to make this happen in a very intentional, systematic way. And one of the things that I note in the preface to the second edition of the book is they've gone beyond bottling lightning. Now they're manufacturing electricity. Now they're inside the White House. Their members are inside making all of these decisions. It's no longer, we've just formalized what was somewhat informal. We formalized and then we've kind of institutionalized it within the centers of power. I don't take an opinion of whether the federal society is good or bad. And I do tend to agree with you that it was a movement that was responding to a need, a perceived need. And and then there were some savvy moves made and some investors attracted to it. And then they ended up growing into something, I think bigger and more formalized than the founding generation would have anticipated.
2: Great. Amanda, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you again so much for joining us today. Well, this has
3: been a great conversation. Okay. I want to thank you for inviting right. me to the program.
1: That was a great interview, Jenna. Thank you, as always. And it was just really a delight to hear Amanda walk us through the kind of intricacies of the Federalist Society. and. One of the things that stuck out to me is that the Federalist Society is not necessarily a traditional interest group that lobbies, but instead is what she calls a political epistemic network. And I think that's really important to think through, right, that their goal ultimately is to disseminate a specific set of ideas, conservative ideas, and as she explains really clearly... Ideas have consequences.
0: Yeah, I think there's this inclination to see them as a nefarious or at least less than benign influence on American politics. And I would want to push back on that. I mean, this is a group of people who shared a similar point of view. They felt like they were in the minority. And from what I know about law school, that's probably accurate. And so they came together so they'd have someone to talk about, to argue with, to refine their ideas. And they were all grounded in what is, at minimum, a completely legitimate and responsible understanding of the Constitution. Whether you share it or not, there's nothing illegitimate about an originalist position. So there's nothing wrong with what the Federalist Society did. I just think they were really, really good at it. They have impacted what was already... And, and hyper-partisanized environments, and moved that partisanization into a branch where it becomes particularly dangerous for democracy.
1: So one thing that you said that I think actually illuminates Amanda's point, her kind of central argument and contribution, is you said, originalism is not illegitimate. And I'm not sure that that has always been the case. And the fact is, is that, right, this kind of epistemic network seeks to shape how the public thinks about the world. Their goal is Mm -hmm. to shape our ideas, to shape our rationale about why we do the things we do, and to step into discourse and contend with whatever the mainstream is to pull it to the right. And so there are a lot of things that we think now are common sense that are in part because the Supreme Court said so, and we have historically seen that as a legitimate institution. And so we take their rationale as guidance. So if we hear enough that there are Supreme Court justices who are originalist, even though it is really hard for us to get our minds wrapped around that exact philosophy, it seems legitimate because enough people are doing it. And most of those people are out of the Federalist Society. So I really thought that she drove the point home that ideas shape policy, policy shapes behavior, behavior shapes, right, has a feedback effect Mm
0: -hmm. on all of us. And when you promote someone to the Supreme Court who's in their 40s or 50s, you're looking at 30, 40 years mm-hmm. of decisions made by that individual representing that point of view. And when they are the the place where the argument stops, and even when it doesn't stop, when their conclusion is, as she says, sticky and has a standing that is greater than legislation, right? Right. That is an incredibly powerful and weighty prospect. It's no wonder people fight about it.
1: Right, and And it's 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 no no wonder that Mitch McConnell is fine with breaking precedence on the judiciary, that getting the right people in the courts is a long-term
0: win. So... Amanda was scrupulous about not saying much about what she wants to happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We're not, right? <laughs> so, Candace, what do we do about this? What's the right strategy? And then what are the prospects for improving the situation?
1: To be sure, Amanda's book is extraordinarily nonpartisan. It is frustratingly neutral. Yeah. <laughs> But I will say that I'm glad that we got to talk to her here to hear her ideas about how to move forward. And I think that her ideas about, hey, like what happens if that we kind of went back, went back to some of the old institutions and ways of the courts that. Maybe that we have lower court folks ride the Supreme Court instead of justices riding circuit the way they used to or to kind of make these regular terms for the Supreme Court justices so that we can have regular predictable nominations and confirmations instead of waiting to see who's going to die, who's Mm going to retire and then have these kind of all out knockout drag out
0: fights. But I mean, there's an irony here as well that one of the proposals for decreasing the partisanization of the Supreme Court is to kind of acquiesce to the fact that it's become partisanized and make a regular kind of term and a regular kind of appointment for every president. So every presidential term, you'd have one or two Appointments to the court, right? Because you have staggered terms just like Mm -hmm. you do in the Senate. I mean, all of that just undermines Mm -hmm. the reason for the judiciary and especially the reason for the Supreme Court. And irrespective of what you think about originalism or what you think about making the court more libertarian or whatever, I think if you are the Federalist Society, it seems to me it's incumbent upon you to take seriously what Hamilton said. And we are all in the benefit of Amanda's really terrific work on this because it's just, uh, it's so thoughtful and, as Candace said, so rigorous. So for the McCourney Institute for Democracy, I'm Chris Beam.
1: And I'm Candace Watt smith Thank you for listening.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant's. Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.